Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get into the word, and uh, we have a, a deep thinking message today. So uh, if we're on, we're good to go. Let's uh, pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for being an awesome God. We do pray that you would just uh, guide our hearts, Father, uh, step into our lives, Father, and then take us by the hand and lead us to where you'd have us to go. Father, we are your children, and uh, we are seeking bread, nourishment, spiritually, Father, to come before you and to, and to eat of, of, of the things of your kingdom. Father, uh, we just pray that uh, this would be a time that would be set aside, dedicated to you, that your son Jesus would be glorified through this process and that uh, you would just continue to reign supreme in this church. We thank you, we praise you, ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Uh, we're knee deep in Luke. And as we've been going through Luke, I'd just like to repeat the theme because I really think this plays all the way through <clears throat> about the parable of the sower. The sower goes out to throw the seed. Some of the seed is gobbled up by the birds of the air. Some of the seed sprouts up quickly and dies. Some of the seed turns around and grows up in the weeds. But there is a seed <clears throat> that bears forth fruit, that grows and produces we want to be that seed of Christ that's planted and to be successful, that would produce a hundredfold. We want to be what we're calling to be a true disciple. We said that the characteristics of a true disciple that we've been pulling apart to this point is somebody that is thinking, somebody that has their brain turned on and is not drunk and slumbering. I love the picture of of creation where God comes into the planet and it's formless and void and the spirit hovers over it and starts a magnificent work. And I really see God coming into Jerusalem, his place that is stale and dead. And he wants to start a new work in Christ. And he wants to come into our lives that is stale and dead. And he wants to produce a new work. He wants to plant a seed that would bear forth life and an abundant life. And Jesus has been trying to remove the, the weeds and the barriers and the problems of life that would distract us, take us off course from being that disciple, that true disciple that would be learning from him. We closed last week, and I want to kind of pick up where we left off in chapter 12 a little bit, and I, hopefully we can go through the whole chapter 13. It's a complicated set of uh, uh, ideas to put together to make one harmonious idea, though. But just to get the flavor of where we left off, and it is critical that in verse 42 it says, And the Lord said, of chapter 12 of Luke, it says, And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward? And I like to use that word butler there for steward, the guy that's in charge of the household. Who's the smart butler whom his master would make ruler over his household? To do what? To give them their portion of food in due season. So is there a butler that would rise above the rest of the servants and take care of the house while the master is away? 
It says, verse 43, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. A promotion if you're found faithful when he returns. But if that servant says in his heart, ah, my master is delayed in his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, in an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two, hack him with a machete, and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And then Jesus gives us the principle which is critical for us. And he says, And the servant who knew his master's will, so it's a matter of knowledge and education here, uh, that the master who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself to do so according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. Uh, he says, but he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes, still drunk and dumb and stupid, but he didn't know, he is going to be beaten with the wet noodle with just a few. And it says, For everyone to whom much is given, is the fact and the principle underlining this, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. And hence we see, <clears throat> come judgment day, that there's going to be variances in the degree of punishment that we may receive. I don't know. Whose shoes would you want to be on on Judgment Day? Uh, sweet little old grandma that kind of made cookies and didn't quite understand Jesus. Or would you rather be the false preacher who knew the Bible but used the Bible to exploit cash and take advantage of people for himself? Don't know about you, but the false preacher, as we would say, sometimes has a special place in hell for those who would malign the pulpit and, and take advantage of his situation for malicious gain. Who would you rather be? Adolf Hitler on Judgment Day? Or would you rather be the false preacher that turned around and knew the truth and ignored it to his own gain? I'd still say Adolf Hitler's in a better spot. Somebody who knows and has an education is therefore responsible for that behavior. Jesus is hammering that home. Ignorance uh, may be a justifiable excuse, but when you're presented with the truth, you're no longer ignorant and you're forced to deal something with it. That's, that's a difficult passage. We, we need to be able to be smart enough to understand the difference. We as a congregation and as believers in Christ, and the mandate just doesn't go to pastors, the mandate goes to each and every single one of us that may be halfway dialed in. And I would believe that the mandate is really explaining to us a desire for us to be semi-intelligent.
A Christian should be a thinker, needs to be well thought out. You need to be able to make a defense for your faith on why you believe and what you believe and not just run around and scream about your dogma, your doctrine, the things that you uphold without understanding why. And so I'm sorry, Christians, sometimes we need to meditate into some deeper things of the word and digest the processes that Jesus is speaking to us about. You have to know the difference. James chapter 3, verse 1, teachers are held to a stricter standard. So with that, let's start into today's text. And we want to look at a few things and understand what's being presented to Jesus. There were present at that season some who told him uh, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So let's just think about that. First off, it gives us a, 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 an inside picture of Pilate a little bit. I don't know why, but when we read the Gospels, we think of Pilate, the guy where Jesus has to be, you know, the governor of the land. Uh, he comes off as kind of a patsy. He comes off as somebody who's wishy-washy and compromises the truth. And here you're seeing a side of Pilate, if you would, first off, that shows some of his harshness and his cruelty. Think of the scene. Here's some poor guy. He's a Galilean. Let's put that in our mind. Galilee was the region up to the north. It wasn't the heart of Judah, and it probably isn't where people should be performing a sacrifice if they were Jewish. If it was in Galilee, but the Galileans could have come down to Judah at the time. And somehow or another, they're performing a sacrifice. So the picture would be, here's poor Johnny. He's coming up and he brings his little sheep in for the year to celebrate to the Lord his forgiveness of sins, his gift to the Lord. There's burnt sacrifices, this sacrifice, whatever it may be. And the process would always be you take your little sheep, little fluffy that you raised out there in the field for so many years and, and you cared for, and you take your best sheep, you'd lay your hands on that sheep, and you'd slice his throat as the blood would be poured out, and you would realize that blood is the sacrifice for your sins, and the message would be, here's some poor guy coming to the temple, making a sacrifice, and Pilate, the governor, the Roman, comes up and says, hey, knock that off. And they said, ah, this is something i got to do. So Pilate comes up, orders his guards to hack the poor guy, offering a sacrifice while he's sacrificing the sheep. And all of a sudden, this poor guy's blood is being mingled with his sacrifice. So picture that. The news is spreading. Everybody goes, did you hear how sick and evil this Pilate dude is? There were these Galileans, man. They're just guys coming up to perform a sacrifice. And they're sitting there trying to offer up their little sheep. And as their blood's being poured out, their blood's being poured out. Now, bear in mind, we want to look at this. And what most people would have the assumption to say, they're going to turn around and say, oh, talk about bad karma. <laughs> What kind of pictures does that send that if you're out there sacrificing to God and you get butchered, man, they must have really offended God. What do they do wrong? What? Maybe, you know, I mean, if you're out there 
given your heart to God and you get shot or killed for doing that, God must not be happy with you. And, and, and you could hear the scuttlebutt, the talk on the street, the people whispering, saying, I wonder what they did wrong to be sacrificed during them. God must not be pleased with that sacrifice. So this argument is what's running through the streets. There's some at the, uh, who were present at the season. Some came and told him, they're saying, Jesus, what do you think about these Galileans? Isn't this strange? Isn't this bizarre? Whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices? <gasps> oh! And Jesus answered and he said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? Do you think these guys were just something bad? Some bad karma, some bad thing that happened, some bad fate that befell them. He says, because they suffered such things. You've got to listen to Jesus. He goes, I tell you no. He says, but unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Now, that's a very cruel statement. And Jesus is talking about the terms of repentance and putting your heart right. And then he turns around, and both of these are kind of current events that Jesus is having to deal with, if you would. In verse 4, he says, And who's 18, uh, and those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell? And we don't know anything about this, and it's just pure speculation, but man, I don't know. I don't, some guys are out there doing a construction project. Thing falls over, the scaffolding goes down, and these guys are crushed and killed. And he killed them. And he says, Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who, listen to this, who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So there's, there's, Jesus is entering into, uh, 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 he's being presented with a scenario, and he's given us an answer. And you're seeing Jesus starting to look at a very complicated issue for most of us Christians that really twists us up and causes us to stumble sometimes. And that's this concept of, of fate. Everything being predestined or the concept that things are set in stone and because certain things happen, it's just going to happen. And Jesus is going to counter what we would call the concept of fate, meaning that, you know, we're, you're just, you're dealt a set of cards and you're going to live with them no matter what happened. And he's turning around and he's, he's arguing the concept of fate against personal responsibility. He's turning around and he's saying, what, you think a set of circumstances, you think because you see circumstances, that's a, an outflow of what a man's heart is. And Jesus wants us to divorce ourselves, separate ourselves from the concept that everything that happens circumstantially is having to do with our heart. Now, we've got to be very careful, and please listen to the whole chapter as things bear itself out. But Jesus is saying it's a matter of personal responsibility of repentance, and that's the only thing that matters in our concept, in our decisions that we make. And notice, if you would, and I find as we go through this chapter and several things within Luke, you find that Jesus is severely beating, if you would, upon the Jews. <clears throat> he's talking about the Galileans. He's talking about those that live in Judah. And he is really saying, if you put it in with what we were talking about in chapter 12, which we started out with, this knowledge of personal responsibility, responsibility for what you know, you can't plead ignorance. And here he is, he's saying, who knows the law? Who knows what they should be doing more than anyone else on the planet would be 
the Jews. And Jesus is walking into a Jewish situation, and he is aghast, first and foremost, to say, you guys should know better. You should know better. There's no excuse for your behavior to miss something. It's those who dwell in Jerusalem. <clears throat> Watch how this works itself out. Verse 6. <clears throat> he also spoke this parable, a parallel story, having a truth. He said, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. So the fig tree would be a symbol of Israel. And he says, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. So there was a level of expectations. And he goes, ah, it's not there. Something's not happening. And then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, so there's the owner of the vineyard, and now there's the keeper of the vineyard. The, the vine dresser would be the terminology. And he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I have found none. Cut it down, for why does it use up the ground? It's useless. But he, the vine dresser, the vine keeper, the guy that was there working, and he interrupts the owner. He says, no, no. He answered, he said to him, sir, he says, he says let, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, we'll keep it. But after that, if not, after that, you can cut it down. And so you're seeing, if you would, the, the vine dresser, the, the guy that's managing the field, begs for a second chance. He's saying, give it a little bit longer. And notice, if you would, the things that are going to bear forth fruit sometimes is that we would give things some time and add fertilizer. And so the desire would be to bear forth fruit. The desire is that God looks out of you and I and he is expecting fruit out of you and I if we're to be the seed that's to produce a hundredfold. And there is a level of expectation from God on what we would do with what we have been given. Can't miss that in the Bible. There is a level of expectation from God on us for what we have been given. That bears forth responsibility in our life. Uh, there's a lot said, and if you've heard any other sermons on this topic, uh, it seems like everybody likes to harp in on that word fertilizer. And uh, we have to add fertilizer sometimes to have growth. Uh, fertilizer is what you grab from the manure pile. You grab it from the compost, compost pile. You got the idea. You throw it around there, around the base of it, and it, and it, and it stimulates growth. And uh, there is a lot to be said for sometimes. It's the trials and tribulations, the things that we deem to be smelly, nasty, and stinky that actually causes us to develop and to mature into better Christians. Obviously, as we do go through trials and tribulations in our life, we start to be forced to make a decision. So all things being equal, if the water's calm, most of you and I would do nothing with our life. God sometimes stirs the pot, adds a little manure to our life, 
and stimulates us and brings us to a place that we must make choices to overcome the difficulties. And as we are encountered with difficulties, we are, most importantly, choosing to make the right path and to take the right direction. It causes us to bear forth the fruit that God wants. And that is what he is expecting from us, that there are decisions, things that we do with our heart and with our mind, that we would decide to take the right path of life. So if you would, you can see that there is a, a couple things that have been happening. If you've been with us the last few weeks, I really th think that Jesus is going into a, a deeper study. We saw almost two weeks ago that there was a, a concept of, of total fatalism, if you would. That uh, you have to be able to accept the things that have been given to us. Oh, I'm sorry, that was last week. We had a, a concept of you go with whatever curves are sent your way. Two weeks before that, it was the opposite sermon, if you would. It was that we have to present ourselves with this unforgivable sin. That, that there is a decision that we could make wrong when the conviction of the Spirit comes upon us, and that could lead us into damnation. So one sermon a couple weeks ago was completely bent towards, look, brother, it's all laying right there at your feet. You make the right decision. Last week's sermon almost comes up and almost sounded completely opposite if you would have caught it. And it was basically saying, whatever comes your way, you've got to learn to roll with the punches. And what we're seeing is a balance, and, and this is very difficult for us to sometimes comprehend as Christians, is there has to be a proper balance on understanding how we make decisions in our life and what we do and how we think and how we believe is critical to God and I would venture what we think and what we believe is more important to God than even the things that we accomplish and say and do in our life judgment is not going to be saying did you perform this task did you perform that task did you do this correctly in order for you to get into the kingdom of heaven God judges our heart and as he looks into our heart, he's going to look at the decision, the choices, and the things that were brought out at the proper time. That, that's the fundamental basis of whether or not we're going to be even able to produce any fruit. Very important that we understand this. Watch how this plays out. And we'll just kind of read through this chapter, and it all kind of comes together. He says, verse 10, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So the synagogue is the Jewish church, if you would. <clears throat> not the temple itself, but a little satellite of it, if you would. And he's teaching, and it was on the Sabbath, the day of rest. So this is when everybody should be coming to church, if you would. And it says, uh, And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity, 18 years, and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And, he's, and he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. So Jesus comes in. He uh, turns around. He sees this lady bent over. I don't know if it was uh, 
osteoporosis. I don't know if it was because she had a bad back with arthritic you know, conditions. We don't know why. Interestingly enough, this is an interesting healing, uh, different than some of the others. Uh, it doesn't say that she had a demon. It called it a spirit of infirmity. Something was there. Maybe it was just old age. Maybe it was just a time because she's obviously had this for 18 years. But there's a spirit of infirmity. And this spirit of infirmity was turning around and Jesus takes care of the situation spiritually and changes her. So this is Dr. Luke. Luke is a doctor who's writing the text. And I find it interesting on how he dissects certain healings, if you would. Pardon the pun there, but he's looking at things. And this lady comes up and Jesus sets her free. He laid his hands on her so there was a physical touch. And immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And I like that. It was an immediate process. We think that in order for God to move, there has to be some type of a logical sequence. You have a lady... And I suppose the logic of it, you'd say, well, her bones aren't strong enough to support her weight. Her muscles aren't there. And they have been cramped in a position for many years that even if you healed her back, she would never have the muscle strength to actually stand up straight again. Obviously, if God healed her, she, he, he would obviously have to take time. And this is an example where you say, well, Things are, are not according to our little agenda. Jesus is coming up and he's trying to say, quit looking at a problem, sickness, and quit thinking that everything has to be in some type of order and timeline for it to make sense to you. And certain things are happening which says, well, this just can't be. How can, how can, you know, when Peter and James go up to the temple, you see a lame guy who hasn't walked for forever, and he's sitting there with no legs, no nothing, and he's leaping. And, you know, well, how did, where did the muscle come from to be able to leap and dance around and to jump up? If you haven't moved your legs, if you know about sitting in a hospital for forever, you, you lose that muscle tone. And yet the guy's jumping. He's leaping. He's, he's all over the place. God does the complete healing. He's touching the whole gambit. And, and interesting, like I said, I don't think that this is a, a demon. This is just an illness. And Jesus comes in and touches her and heals her. So now all of a sudden, while he's in there, it says the ruler of the synagogue. So this isn't the, the priest. This isn't a teacher. This isn't a Levite. This was just the guy who's the, the, the senior administrator, if you would. He's like the chief of the ushers, if you would. He's the one that makes sure everything's done right and in order and allowing the priest to do what needs to get done. This guy blows a gasket. He says, but the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. What? How dare this happen? And he says, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them. And do not, and not on the Sabbath day. <clears throat> so, what a nut, right? You're going to see this guy, he's turning around, and all he's worried about is the procedure. He's worried about the technicality of it, and he couldn't stand to see this lady healed, and he's blowing a gasket. Why? And it could be a, a jealousy of power. Maybe he was jealous, and so he reacts this way. We see jealousy very strongly. But, but it, I, I think it's deeper. 
I think that things were not fitting into his nice little box that he had for God. And he couldn't think outside of his nice little box that he had for God. He couldn't believe that something would happen outside of the parameters, the way that he thought God should work, and it just can't happen this way. And so he's mad. He's upset. And he's going, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. You know, no, it's Sunday. It's Saturday, their Sabbath. You know, We're sitting here. This is the day not to be sitting down there getting healed. If you want to get healed, you come back some other time. And I want to just lift up to you that Jesus is trying to change a stubborn man's way of thinking. That's all. We're looking at some things that are going on here in the text. Jesus recognizes that you and I are very stubborn in our way of thinking. We have a preset, presupposed way that we think God needs to work in our life. And the truth be told, you and I are very, very stubborn and we don't like it when God works outside of the way that we think he should. Jesus is begging us to be a little bit more open-minded towards some things that you would immediately shut off and say, it just doesn't happen like that. There has to be inside of us as believers a sense of adventurism to go into the unknown and to try things that uh, uh, may not be the norm for you and I. A believer should have a teachable spirit. You should be one that is open to say, what are you doing, God? Where are you at? I feel uncomfortable here. And this guy is losing it because he wants to be stuck in his little stubborn box. Maybe he's turning around and he's thinking, you know, this lady, I know her. She, she, you know, doesn't give that much money, so she should be bent over. Yeah, that's what it is. And we like, we like to look at things and make judgments upon them. Well, the guys got cut performing their sacrifices. They obviously didn't wash their hands beforehand. That's why that happened. Oh, they got ripped apart while they're performing their sacrifices. Oh, we know that there's sin in the camp someplace. Oh, that's what it is. And all of us want to look. Oh, she's bent over from her infirmities. Well, we know that's because she's been smoking cigarettes. That's why she's that way. Don't tell me that God's just got to forgive that and get rid of that. There is a process on why things are this way, and God is not going to come in and change my thinking and what Jesus is saying, man, as a disciple, has got to be able to look a little deeper. So the Lord answered him and he said, you hypocrite. Well, thanks, Jesus. He's being polite, kind, and, you know, slap. Shock value. You hypocrite. You think you're spiritual? How dare he say that to the synagogue leader? Isn't that supposed to be some prestigious thing? And he's calling him a hypocrite. You two-faced hypocrite. And he says, use a, use a little bit of common sense. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox and donkey from the stall and lead them away to water it? You go out and feed your animals. So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, well, maybe the spirit of infirmity was something demonic, whom Satan has bound, and listen to this, he goes, think of it. You hear that? He goes, think of this. Just turn your brain on. Think of this. Would you guys just think for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. And when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And 
all the multitude, all the other people, they cheered, yeah, shut these synagogue officials up for all the glorious things that were done by him. So Jesus is coming in and he's offering compassion and love for others and he's making a decision, a choice to heal and he's only asking people to think. A couple of good scriptures for us. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And sometimes we need to think a little bit outside the box, look at a person and say, man, isn't that the right thing to do? Can we lighten up a little bit? There's such rules and regulations and stiffness of certain people that just drive other people away. They have to be obnoxious. And somehow, in the name of being God, with their holy arguments of one reason for another, they push everyone away from them, and they think that that is right. And Jesus is saying, you know what? People are hurting. People need to be made right. Can we touch them? Can we love them? And it is. I think what Jesus is saying, you know, he's putting it face to face. He says, hey, look, this lady's been sitting here. Can we heal this? And all of a sudden, I guess there's something going on here where, where the synagogue's officials saying, well, when you make it such a black and white statement of you take care of a donkey and water it, this is a daughter of Abraham bound by Satan. So, yeah, that is stupid of me. And there's something, there's something about the human mind that loves to hide in the dark shadows of a logical argument, a reason. Uh, their debates on what they think fatalism is, and they create uh, an intellectual argument that lacks heart. So we said Jesus is asking us to be a thinker, but he's not asking us to start to be deceptive in our thoughts. He's not asking us to be tricky. And so many people, they create, and they're very witty, about creating smoke screens to take us off from the truth of where people's hearts are. And Jesus says, man, I see right through your smoke screen all your, well, what about this? And what about if you were a tick and on a dog? And, you know, da, 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 and then uh, would God be real? And blah, blah, blah. People come up with the most harebrained ideas to come up with some bizarre, insane scenario that would justify them to be able to go out and say, well, that's why it's okay for me to kill my mother. And you go, what are you doing? Where are you going? What are you thinking? And, you know, Jesus stops and he looks at things. And he says, where is this line of reasoning going? And there are people that want to use uh, fatalism, the idea of things just set in cement, and they look at it and they interpret it. Well, I must be right, because why else would Pilate have this? And why else would this be, you know, these poor guys are slaughtered out here? And Jesus says, divorce yourself from thinking that way. That's not the answer to the situation. And I like this. It says, all the multitudes rejoiced for the glorious things that were done by him. You know, when, when man creates his little stupid arguments to justify his sins because they want to have some intellectual argument that is really ignorant, most people know. <laughs> you ever get that? You go, you know, you're up there yelling and screaming at me, and you go, that's a really good argument. And you go, you make a good point. But people walk away from that, and they go, but you're still an idiot. And, and I don't like that. And, and that control, that weird, that thing that, that, that freaks out people sometimes, they know. They can smell the truth. Sheep are not stupid. They know when somebody's sincere, and they know when somebody's insincere. And you can sit down there and call yourself a Christian all day long and look as good as you want, 
but people know. I, uh, I was listening to Rob do his uh, practice on the keyboards, and I was, I was going to tell him, I said, Rob, you know, if you're in a song, and they were playing a song for the first time for Rob Turner there, and uh, I was going to tell him my little trick. I said, when I was in the seventh grade orchestra, I, I, used to, uh, I used to sit down and play the viola, so it's a little bit larger of a violin. And uh, we used to have, I think my, my climactic point of my viola career was I got to play bridge under tr over troubled water or whatever it was, you know. And, uh, and we'd sit there and they'd have the whole orchestra get up there. And I was always just a little bit behind the curve. And the trick was that if you, if you didn't know what you're doing, us and some of the string se section knew the trick. You put the bow under the strings <laughs> and then you could always move the bow up and down it looked like you're playing <laughs> but you never made a sound you know so everything always went back and forth and i always got to say rob just you know just move your fingers around if you don't know what you're doing to look, to look intelligent you know and and uh and unfortunately you go you go that's what most people do as a christian they're running around and they're acting and they're sounding and they're looking real good but they're not making a sound and they're not doing anything that's right for the lord and, and that fake, that phony, that hypocritical thing is what Jesus is just, you know, uh, upset about. But yet, you know, you can't fool the masses. People are going to look at it and say, dude, you're not doing nothing. Sooner or later, it comes to the surface and people know and they go, ah, whatever you're saying, I don't, yeah. And the people, they're like, yeah, these guys, they're sounding real godly, but yay, ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. Go get them, Jesus. And so notice, if you would, Jesus sits down there and hones in this argument. He says, verse 18, and he says, well, what is the kingdom of God like? Well, what's the truth look like? And, and to what shall I compare it? He says, it's like a mustard seed, one of the little small, tiny little seeds, which a man took and put in his garden. And it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. So Jesus is saying, you take a little seed, which is a speck of nothing, you plant it into the ground, and it becomes huge. It's big. Birds can land in it. And, and he's saying the kingdom of God is like that. And what he's saying is, you know, when Christianity comes into your life, it should be radical. It should be explosive. It should be exponentially making changes in someone's life. You can't turn around and say, well, I got the kingdom of God in me, and, you know, I, you know, give me a few more years to produce some fruit. I'm just going through a tough time. Man, when God gets a hold of you, it rips you, pulls you, throws you out, takes you all over the place and expands your life. It's a radical thing that should be changing. It's not the same old thing over and over. It's not a broken record. The kingdom of God is radical change. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's what God wants to see in your life. And again, he said, to what shall I then liken the kingdom of God? He says, it's like leaven. Leavens like yeast, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal. So if you, if you had a lady making bread, she'd take a little bit of yeast, and then you, you knead in all the dough, and you put all the yeast, and then pretty soon the idea would be till it was all leavened. Concept being that when God comes into your life, it penetrates into every area of your life. It's really hard to call yourself a Christian and say, yeah, I'm a Christian on Sunday, but on Friday night I'm out partying with the world. And you go, well, that's just my, you know, I compartmentalize my life. That's the God compartment. This is the party compartment. And Jesus says, everything. It's there. 
It's there. You can't say you're going to schism out your life into different parts. It's got to permeate into all of it. So you're seeing a penetrating, radical change in someone's life. That's what the kingdom of God should look like. It's not the same old thing. It's not just grumpy people getting around and yelling at people and, gee, someone got healed. Now, he goes into a deeper argument. And he went through the cities and villages. So Jesus is bebopping through town. He's teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Now, then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And for me, this is a huge question. This, this, this is big. I've always wondered this. You ever think, well, how many people are going to be in heaven? I'd like to know the percentages. Are there a few? Are there many? I mean, let's just say when we die, we get to heaven. You know, everybody in Ohio goes to heaven. You know, except, you know, three people, you know. There's got to be, let's say, three people that are really bad, you know. And, but everyone else, God's grace covers it, and we're all there anyway. Or when we get to heaven, we find out that there's really only three people that go to heaven. And I, I'd like to know, because, you know, if it's 50-50, you know, you'd go, well, I got a pretty good chance. You know what I mean? Hey, I'm in the top 50%, I think. You know, 70-30, I'm still hacking it pretty good here. I think I could be okay. But if only three people in Ohio were truly saved people, whew, that puts some pressure on me. But if only three people, I mean, you know, you got Hitler and, you know, Taft or whoever else, <laughs> I don't know. He's not, he's not going to be, no, I don't know. But uh, it's just a, just a known name out there, I'm just saying. Not a known name, but a known name. But anyway, uh, but you know, maybe, you know, then you can relax and enjoy life a little bit more. And when I get to heaven, I'd really like to know. So God, how, ma how, you know, how many of them are up there? And this guy's asking a very important question. He goes, hey, how many people are up there? How, how many, uh, are there many or few that are saved? Just a few people going to heaven? Now Jesus turns around and he's going to answer this question, but he's not going to address it. He's going to look at it from a different angle. And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, oh, there's a whole boatload of people that uh, I say to you will seek to enter. Everyone wants to get in and will not be able. So there's a, I don't know, can you say majority that aren't going to make it in, even though they want to make it in? He says, when once the master of the house has risen up uh, and, and shut the door, he says, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Then you will begin to say, oh, but we ate and drank in your presence. We're your old buddy, old pal, your drinking buddy. And you taught in our streets. What do you mean where we're from, Jesus? You know us. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Go burn in hell. And so the door's there, people want to go in, and this guy's coming up and he's asking the question. Now notice, if you would, I think Jesus has given us a very intelligent answer because a lot of people want to know, well, hey, well, what's the percentage? Where do I stand with God? I, you know, what's happening? And what Jesus is saying is, is, is 
think of it as this way, that there are only three people in Ohio that are going to heaven. And the answer would be, well, then I would want to be one of them. And I should live like there are only three, and I should be striving, fighting, working to accomplish, to do all that I can to be in that number. And now if God saves 97% of the population, well, praise the Lord, hallelujah, you know, we get a little bit higher when we get up there, I guess. You can go higher and lower into hell, maybe you can go higher into heaven, I don't know. And you can sit down and look at this and say, hey, but what I want to do is to strive. And I want to enter through the narrow gate for many will be wanting to get in and they're not going to get in. And it's because it's where they're from. And please notice, if you would, that what Jesus is saying, it's not just the work that God has done among us. It is our response to that work. Do you hear that? So they're saying, hey, Jesus, you came and preached right in Calvary Chapel. Hey, let me in, Jesus. I'm part of Calvary Chapel. Hey, who are you? I don't know you. Where are you from? Well, I'm from Calvary Chapel. Didn't you come and do a healing service there? Oh, yeah, Jesus says, but where are you from? Wait, wait, what do you mean? They're answering, I'm telling you where I'm from. I'm from the streets that you know. And he goes, no, 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 where are you from? In other words, where are you coming from? I know that I've done a work among you, but you never responded to that work. There is a level of responsibility which is being hammered home again to you and I that we have to be responsible for our decisions that we make in our life. Total fatalism would say, well, God came down and did a work. I'm either part of it, I'm not a part of it, and God did a work amongst us, so we're all going to heaven. And what we want to do is to say, well, everything's what God's done. And what Jesus is turning around and says, I know I've done a lot, says God. But how do you respond to it? And if you don't respond correctly, you're thrown out. Wow, this is mind-blowing. Where are you from? I don't know. Maybe where'd you come out of? Did you come out of doing something yourself? What's your motives of your heart? And he's asking, where are you coming from? He says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, verse 28. They will be weeping and gnashing. They're screaming. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you go, oh, they're the good Jews up there. And all the prophets of the kingdom of God, and you're yourselves, you're thrown out in the trash. And this is insult to injury, if you would. And then they're going to come from the east and to the west and from Columbus, Ohio, from the north and the south, and those heathen Gentile dogs will sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. So if you would, the picture would be, what a tormenting picture of hell. And I believe all of us are going to stand before God on Judgment Day. Scripture says, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. Every single person here in this room will stand before God on Judgment Day. And when you see God, you are going to see the awesome intensity and the magnitude of God. And you're going to sit down and go, wow, I had no idea that you were that big. And you're going to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and there's going to be a little party in front of the throne and you're going to say, oh, I want to come and be part of that number. I'm a Jew. You did a work amongst me. And Jesus says, nah, you knew something, you blew it off, 
you were irresponsible, you didn't respond right, you're not coming from the right direction here, who are coming from anybody from the east, the north, the south, or the west, any Gentile dog from Ohio that can figure out who God is, is going to be in the kingdom instead of in front of some Jew. Jew. You've got to understand how offensive this message is here, how Jesus is slapping these people in the face. And he's turning around and he says, you can get some Gentile dog. Anybody from the four corners of the earth is going to come in and get in in front of you because you knew something. You did nothing with it. You have not bore forth fruit. We'll put a little fertilizer in it. We'll give you a second chance. Jesus is saying, you got me. Watch how you string me up. And people will not take responsibility for their own behavior, but they always come up with a smokescreen, a lie, a deception, a trickery, and they want to come up with some excuse and say that, oh, I have such an intellectual answer for what's going on here. And instead of turning on their brain and saying, Lord, I have a responsibility to choose you, and I'm going into some unfamiliar, uncomfortable places in my life, and I need to hold on to you because you're going to take me for a wild ride, a radical ride that penetrates every area of my life. It's going to be extreme. And God wants to do that. And man always wants to put God back into that little box. Don't work outside my comfort zone. Oh, God's doing something. I don't like that when God does that. That's not God. Oh, yes, it is God. And we need to think, we need to push things aside, and we need to say, Lord, where is this you? Where's the fruit of this, and where are you leading me? This is strong, radical text. He says, on that very day, verse 31, some Pharisee came saying to him, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. So listen to this. This kind of puts some of the thoughts into line. Hey, Jesus, you're a wanted man. Herod, you think Pilate's bad? Herod's his boss, and he's got your number, man. There's a hit out on you. He wants to kill you. You notice what Jesus said. You go tell that fox. <laughs> he said, you go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons. I perform cures today and tomorrow. And then the third day, I shall be perfected. So, hey, I'm going to get strong up. I don't care. You're not going to thwart God one bit. I don't care about little Weasley Herod. He says, nevertheless, listen to this. It's interesting. I must journey today. I've got a plan. I've got, I've got something that's pre-planned. I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following. I've got things to do. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Please listen to this. Jesus is saying, there is a course that is set for me, and I must walk in it. Wow, Jesus, you're throwing some loops at us. Listen to this. He, now Jesus turns around and he gives a lament. And he goes, Jerusalem Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to her. Man, you know, you guys have made mistake after mistake. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. I just love you guys. I'm trying to bring you back into the family. He says, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, meaning of the end times, the day of judgment. That's when you're going to figure out a day late and a dollar short. And so what Jesus is saying, and please understand, if you're with me through my argument and you don't think that I'm going a little, that's not my phone. 
And, uh, and please, if you're with me through this argument, and maybe you think I might be stretching a little bit, but the argument is, 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 is an argument that now all of a sudden says, wait a second, he's saying you're going to go to your house which is desolate because of your actions. And if you would, Jesus just lumped consequences to the behavior. Now, it's a twisty, windy road here to interject what we need to do. But there is a path you can be on that will lead to destruction and a path that will lead to life. And what we need to do is to say there is a choice that we need to make. Ben's going to yank the battery out of it now. <laughs> I'd call you a knucklehead, but I was at the pastor's conference right behind Chuck Smith. They told all the pastors, shut your cell phones off. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I went out and made a phone call, forgot to turn mine off, and then my phone's going off. Right, I'm sitting right behind. I mean, there's a thousand people here. I'm right behind Chuck Smith. You can just see Chuck rolling his eyes back from his head. When I'm behind him, you, can, you know, it was that. And you just go, oh, man, you know. And I sit there taking my phone, smashing it, like, shut up. <laughs> Rip the battery out. <laughs> go away. <laughs> I don't care who it is. Uh, it was my buddy Brett Gandy calling me, too. <laughs> What's so important? <laughs> In California. But uh, the decisions we make. <laughs> but please, bear in mind, getting back to the thought here, that, that this is an intense passage because, well, it's showing the love of God and he cares for his people. But there, there's a, a play here about being left desolate because of the decision that they made to reject God. Now, the best we can make uh, as, as a proper assumption of dealing with a responsibility and fatalism, if you would, is that we have a choice to make on which path we are going to be on. You can be on the wrong train, on the wrong tracks, going in the wrong direction, making all the wrong stops. Or you can be on the right path, on the right train, going in the right direction, that's going to make all the right stops. And we have a choice to stay on that path. And as we are on that path, you are going to receive a set of consequences for where that path leads. And I can't get around that, that there are consequences to the things that we say and do. That we would be left desolate if we are unwilling to come to Christ. And our life would be vacant, empty, and destroyed. That's the fruit that it would bear. But there has to be, within the formula, a sense of personal responsibility for you and I to turn around and say, I've got a choice in this. It is not complete fatalism. It is not saying things are outside of my control. It is not for me to say there's nothing I can do about it. I will just sit here like a lump of you know, coal, a sack of potatoes, and accomplish nothing with my life. There is a level of expectation of God out of you and I that we have to take an initiative. There's a kick in the pants for us to get up and to do. Now, we believe in total grace. We believe that God has done the work. But please, as Jesus Christ has come into the world to pay the price for our sins, there still has to come down a responsibility, and Christians should be free will thinking, intelligent people with a will that have a decision to move and to say, Lord, I want to walk in these things. And I know if I choose this path, I know where the path is leading. It's going to you, Lord, and it's going to bear forth fruit and it's going to be right. 
And what happens as a Christian is he follows, he follows the Lord. You can decide to stay on that path or you can decide to get off of that path. If you decide to follow the Lord with your life, then you will bear forth the fruit that we desperately seek to be a true disciple. And Jesus will look at us as we're following him. He'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And even if Jesus comes up to us, but we do not respond appropriately, we would still be lost. And we could say, well, God, you know, you're right there. I'm doing everything. I'm right in Calvary Chapel, and Calvary Chapel is just the humdinger of a church. I mean, you're right in the midst of it, and I'm part of it, so therefore I'm going to heaven. No. It has to be where we stand in our hearts, and it comes down to a decision that we make, and it's down to the will in our lives that predetermines, if you could say that, where we're going if our heart is made right or wrong. In your heart today, the thing that's going to hold up your heart is when you eliminate, systematically eliminate God from your life by your own way of thinking. We destroy ourselves because we lock God in a box. We say, you can't do that, God. And I don't know how many people, they walk through the doors and they have this idea. They're looking at us and they're judging the church. And they're saying, well, I, I think God should be like this. He should be very intellectual and very abstract. And I think if you're coming to God, you should wear a, a suit and tie. Doesn't that only make sense that suit and tie people in a very dignified sense would be true worshipers of God? People that come in shorts and a t-shirt just is not God. And so they walk in the door and what do they, they immediately shut their brain off and say, this is not God. It's not God. Nope. And they walk out. Now, regardless, you, you just eliminated a work that could be happening. And sometimes we have to look at things and say, hey, look, this may not be on the, the day, it may not be the time, it may not be the season. We're looking for the heart of God to be bore out and what we need to be is open to what the Holy Spirit is calling you and I to do. And I really think Jesus is doing a very deep thesis here in these last few weeks, begging us to be smart enough to turn our brains on and to understand where things are because there are teachings in the church that destroy the church that lead everybody into a sense of fatalism. And it's not just Christianity, but it seems like religion as a whole. You can look at the Muslim, the Buddhist, the this, the, there's the sects of, of all religions sometimes fall into this fatalistic view of everything to be so predetermined. And Jesus and what Christianity is begging out of us is that there is a concept of us to have a free will. That concept is pivotal to understanding true, true Christianity that we would bear a responsibility for our actions and that we would say, Lord, you're expecting something out of me. You're presenting a truth to me and now I'm responsible. I'm obligated to make a choice. I can't just run and hide. You can't just present the gospel to somebody and say, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and now you can have everlasting life if you accept and believe in him. And once that truth is presented, once you turn ah, now you're going to be held accountable for that decision. And as, as, as the message goes forward, as the, as the fruit of God's kingdom continues to bear, it's going to hold more and more people responsible, accountable, and, and we have a responsibility to do the right thing. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and close in prayer. Went a little long, guys. Sorry. Complicated, but worth it if you think your way through it. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you that uh, you have given us minds to think.
that uh, we would digest some of these things, Father, and that we would not be swayed quickly by people's prejudices which lock you out. Help us, Father, to be a congregation that's open and yielding and moving, radical change that penetrates every area of our life. Father, get us away from that fatalism, looking at people and judging them for circumstances, but to see the heart, to see the spirit, to see things move. Father, we love you. We praise you. We give you all the glory, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.